0: hello fellow herpetologists welcome to episode 34 of herpetological highlights my name is tom major and joining me is my co-host ben marshall he's not joining me he's always here, He's resident um, and this is the... resident
1: on the internet distant <laughs> yeah. distant but resident
0: omnipotent so uh yeah no omnipresent this ben has would made be, would be the right word Om- omnipresent okay all right um Ben's made it very clear that I have to use the words news niche. So there they are. It's an episode of that variety. Excellent. And uh, it's not, you know, we don't have a particular focus or topic. We both just gone away, spent a couple of weeks. Obviously, we had other stuff on. We weren't just reading for the podcast, but
1: in the last couple of weeks, we
0: just. Two weeks dedicated to reading. Mm. Two whole weeks of reading. I mean, yeah, (laughs) that would be lovely. Unfortunately, I've got other things to do, like go shopping. I got a new alarm clock. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I'm not going to ask about it because um, I don't think anybody cares <laughs> you wish you had because is it, is it a pretty re- cool feature is it reptile related is it shaped it, like you, a tortoise
0: how would you is it a tortoise that you have, you have know, to lob at the wall <laughs> it's a tortoise you have to run out to the road and put, get it run over by a car No, um, oh, a imagine if it was one of those ones you know those alarm clocks that like walk off you know they tumble under the bed so Gives you sort of an early morning mission to wake you up.
1: I didn't, but now I do.
0: Yeah, you can get ones that, like, do that, or you can get ones that um, you have to solve a basic maths question and it proves to the alarm clock that you're awake and then it will eventually stop making a noise. So this one asks but you a basic
1: you... herpetology question.
0: No, it doesn't. It doesn't have any of those features. Like, um... is the Bushmaster Viva Paris? Oh! The answer... Well, okay, the answer might surprise you. Actually... No, it isn't, but ancestrally it was. <laughs> Whoa! More on that later. No, the main feature of this alarm clock, which distinguishes it from the rest of the pile, is that it tells you the temperature. And so... The temperature inside know, or outside? Presumably the temperature inside the alarm clock, because it has no holes in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I've learned that my favourite temperature is 23 degrees.
1: Ooh, that's, that's... I think a lot of, I I've got nothing to say on that.
0: Okay. mine's well, yeah. twenty-seven. 25? Your your favourite temperature is twenty-seven. Yeah, degrees. man, for twenty what? twenty-seven. Or a bath, just twenty-seven, for everything, man. Apart from tea. Okay. Well, anyway, that was a <laughs> that was an uninteresting tangent. So, should we get to things which are sort of her? Yes, please. Focus? And apologies <laughs> ap- apologies for me sounding a bit stuffed up and coldy. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I should apologise because I was coldy last by week and I didn't apologise. Um, but I don't know, I think I sounded a little bit more sultry than usual, so maybe it was good. <laughs> People loved it. You need to get more <laughs> more diseases. <laughs> um, so, like, I mean, we're talking about things which have happened, big recent news in herpetology. Um, yes, what do you want to start with?
1: Um, well... I think we should start with uh, an invasive species topic. Okay. I think we should start with a Hunter, Johnson, Smith, Davis, Butterfield, Snow and Hart paper published in 2018, only hmm, uh, about a month ago maybe, called Cytonuclear Discordance in the Florida Everglades Invasive Burmese Python, Python Bivitatus, Population reveals possible hybridization with the Indian Python, Python Marlaris. Uh Published in
0: something. It was published Ecology in... and Evolution. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I also dug this one out. This was the main thing that I had to speak about, so it's cool that we found the same thing. Although it might limit us in terms of how much material we actually have for the episode. <laughs>
1: Hey-ho. Uh, it's, it's, you know, luck of the draw, isn't it? <laughs>
0: Proves it's an interesting
1: paper if we've both gravitated towards it, or at least it was heavily covered.
0: I'm studying non-native species of snakes, so, um, yeah, I was really interested to read this one.
1: And I saw a Burmese
0: python the other day, so... Oh, what? Yeah. What was it doing? Oh, you know, chilling. Well, I haven't seen any Burmese pythons recently at all. Actually, that's a lie. I've seen two. There's two at the zoo, so I've seen two. There we go. But they're, um... Yeah, I mean, they're in the zoo, so they're easy to see. You can more or less guarantee it. But um, <laughs> one of them was one of them was eating a rabbit, which was quite cool. Nice. Yeah.
1: Not much is known about Burmese pythons we should probably start with, or at least uh, in their native range. It's one of those species that everybody knows of and is quite big in captive trade stuff. But really, when it comes down to ecology, mm, could be better.
0: Yeah, they are a bit of a mystery. We seem to know a lot more about their... Ecology as a non-native species than we do as a native species, which is kind of sad.
1: Oh, 100%. And actually, there's something that comes up in this paper a couple of times where they're lamenting the fact that um, more genetic work hasn't been done in native populations, uh, because it would really help inform what they're doing here. And part of me was was snidely thinking in the back of my head, well, maybe maybe we should push a little bit more funding Southeast Asia's way first, eh? Hey? <laughs> maybe you get those fundamental natural history things sorted but um
0: yeah so before we go into too much detail about this paper we should probably just preface it i mean i'm sure all of our listeners are aware of the situation with burmese pythons in florida um essentially since the 1980s they've been breeding in the wild uh in the everglades national park and surrounds um They got there through uh, irresponsible pet owners releasing their snakes, but also there's some suggestion that there may have been um, a big release in a hurricane which took out a breeding facility of hundreds of animals and they all flooded into the Everglades. It's all a bit of a grey area. As with these things, you know, no one's going to hold their hands up and be like, yeah, i put a load of bearish pythons out there because you're not actually meant to do that. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Well, until you look at some invasive species that have been introduced deliberately to do something. And then that's quite easy to trace because like, yeah, yeah, this guy had the great idea. It was him.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guys, um, guys,
1: I got this great toad.
0: But anyway, since they've um, since they've been introduced, they've been responsible for declines in all kinds of things: um, mammals, birds. They're basically just eating their way through the everglades, and none of the animals are quite prepared for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is a sort of situation where they are seeing uh, losses. Of, of species. But that's not to say that it is entirely down to pythons. I think you've got to quite importantly state that Florida and places in the southern US are undergoing sort of habitat decline and degradation as well. So you've got a situation of multiple different factors pushing native species into tighter and tighter corners. So yes, pythons are a problem, but You can't solve the python problem and not solve other problems because they're all working together, essentially.
0: They're synergistic.
1: Synergistic, exactly.
0: Pow. Yeah, so as you alluded to earlier, um, essentially the Burmese python has been taking the rap for this big, terrible crime in the Everglades where the species is taking over, causing all kinds of chaos. (laughs) But as it turns out, it should have been sharing the blame with the indian python mm. so the burmese python is python bivittatus, and the indian python is python malurus and um yeah they sampled a whole bunch of snakes hundreds of snakes in this study um and they did some genetic work both on mitochondrial dna loci two of those and also 22 microsatellites. um and we're, we're talking about between three hundred eighty nine and four twenty six snakes, depending on the method <coughs> which is a lot and it's a lot of um, snakes yeah what they what they saw was really interesting, and that is that um the population contains a lot of blood from the Indian python um and the reasons for this well, I mean to be honest i've I've pretty much made up my mind on what the reason for that is um, oh yeah, <laughs> which is I'm gonna take it, a guess I that
1: mean, you're going with crazy people breeding them together to make some weird like morph for the captive python trade.
0: Well, I've, it's certainly to my mind, it's, the, it's definitely the captive trade. Whether or not people were doing this on purpose, I probably, I would argue that most people didn't know what they were doing because well, they do look similar.
1: Yeah, and I think that's relatively fair because they were considered subspecies at various points in times, were they not?
0: They were, yeah, they were, until very recently. Um,
1: yeah, so th- th- that's again, that's sort of me mentioning the lament of southeast asian research is that you're lacking fundamental species delimination until you know perhaps later than you'd like granted yeah, there's sure. now been enough work to sort of all right we'll work this stuff out but it's a uh, it you know there's a never enough work is there there's never going to be enough but at least it's uh relatively agreed upon now
0: yeah, but at least in terms of the uh, invasive population, they definitely come from two different species. And actually, they found more genetic variety in this individuals in Florida than they actually found in the paper which described splitting the two subspecies and elevating uh, Python malurus to species level. I'm sorry, um, they saw thought... Oh no, sorry, Python. they elevated Python bivitatus, that's right.
1: So, sorry, the the, the greater diversity is... They're seeing that within species or the difference between the two species?
0: So when they split the two species based on uh, samples from the the now two species, yeah, they actually found more diversity in amongst the individuals in Florida than they did when they conducted the research to split the two species.
1: So there's a more confident split in the Florida yeah. ones, is what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This is interesting because... Um, Field observations of these two different species in their native range suggest that they don't, while they are sympatric, they um, have, you know, they overlap in some areas. But um, the Burmese pythons prefer kind of riverine forests and flooded grasslands, a la the Everglades National Park, while the Indian python prefers sort of dry, sandy and woodland areas. Mm. And so the fact that there's a mixture of genetics and actually there's individuals comprising one or you know, either more Indian or more Burmese python, um, the fear is that uh, there could be a lot more adaptability within that population because actually the diversity is so high and the tolerance of different habitats is really high that future stresses like climate change or, you know, anthropogenic pressure may actually not present a hindrance to these mm. animals. They might be well-equipped to adapt, Um which is, you know, I mean, one of the reasons this paper is interesting is because it's a big theory in invasion biology that the genetic variability of a population is a really important predictor of how successful that population will be as an invasive species. And so what this paper represents is evidence that this population of giant pythons in the Everglades is pretty well varied in terms of its genetics. And although if, you know, they compared the invasive pythons to pythons in the native range and they actually only had about 50 percent of the amount of alleles but nevertheless like the fact that they contain material from two different species and you know and not just that but like there's also individuals with a lot of introgression from both species uh it i mean it's pretty threatening stuff really
1: yes i mean that really hits the nail on the head is If you've got a species that's more adaptable, you're going to have to work harder to stop them from expanding and uh, getting into new places, aren't you? Yeah. Something specialised is going to find it tougher.
0: Precisely. And um, I mean, they've already demonstrated that they are well equipped to survive in the Everglades. (laughs) So this is just news that actually we may have only seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of their adaptability.
1: Mm. And of course, they can move insane distances. As far as I know... The spatial ecology work done on invasive Burmese pythons showed them to be the furthest ranging snake in the world. We what talk- was, the, what oh. was the
0: biggest distance that they would go? Oh my gosh, that-
1: I can't give you... Because of my lack of hardware, I can't give you exact numbers. But off the top of my head, I'm remembering upwards of 2,000 hectares ranges. Just crazy distances. Crazy, crazy distances. How,
0: m- how many football pitches is that?
1: Uh, more than five. More than five? Yeah, probably a lot more. How big is a football pitch? Oh, I see.
0: I don't know. I'm just Googling it.
1: (laughs) What type of football are we talking about?
0: Where are these football pitches? Whoa. Well, okay. So a rugby pitch is one hectare. Well, there we go. So, geez. So these things have a range the size of 2,000 rugby pitches. Yeah, we're talking talking massive, massive sizes. That being said,
1: um, those... Ranges were calculated via pretty crude methods. Um, okay. So they're not actually using 3,000 hectares of space. But if you draw a box around the whole thing, it's 3,000 hectares. Now, I'm not certainly not going to get into spatial ecology methods. But uh, I think you can see the deal... Again, I don't have stuff in front of me today. Um, I'm pretty sure it's a Hart et al. paper from... Twenty fourteen, yeah, something along those lines. It's the one that I mentioned last time, uh, because they put GPS trackers GPS, in the Pythons. Yeah. Um
0: Yeah, I got it here.
1: Yeah. You'll see the see the maps yeah. and you'll see a I think there's a table with ranges somewhere in it, and the numbers are just nuts. They're you know, you have Eastern Indigo snakes, you have King Cobras, which are giving big ranges, like thousand hectares, mm. one thousand five hundred hectares, and then you have these pythons that are Just another step up.
0: Yeah, so some of them had ranges that were like 87 kilometres squared. Uh,
1: So what's that going to be? 8,700 hectares? Uh, Yeah. I think?
0: Yep. that's exactly it. Wow, that's mad. Yeah. They really are ranging around. But this this is
1: another invasive species sort of trait, is you get these individuals that just disperse like mad. I'm going to bring up cane toads again, but they do it there too. You get individuals that just seem to uh, go and don't look back.
0: Do you like toads? Toads? <laughs> I, I don't
1: even know what they are.
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that is that is the gist of the paper really, isn't it? These, the Burmese Pythons aren't just Burmese Pythons and um, while it's kind of cool, it's also possibly kind of bad.
1: Yeah, the other complication that they, they bring up is uh, how There have been a couple of previous studies using eDNA to uh, track them down and find out whereabouts they are. Sort of inform uh, more traditional methods of detecting snakes, because guess what? Snakes are hard to find. So something like eDNA, which is pulling genetic material from water, soil, the environment, can help narrow down your searches and uh, work out where they're really occurring. And if you're looking for one species as opposed to one that's hybridised or maybe an entirely separate one, you're looking for the wrong thing, essentially. Yeah. So that has scope, uh, potential to confuse eDNA efforts. Uh, So in that sense, super important that this has been ID'd and uh, done so thoroughly. I must admit, a lot of this paper, a lot of the methods... Couldn't make head or tail of. This is yeah, yeah. The only thing that I wanted to mention was the cool thing with this genetic stuff is you get estimates of effective uh, population size, and from those, they gave a sort of rough estimate of how long ago the founding uh, generate the founding event was because you'd you'd see a basically a bottleneck in you can trace it back and find out basically when the population was small and they were suggesting it's 0.2 to 4 generations ago that had a 90 over 90% reduction in population size, and they're suggesting that's pretty good for supporting the mid-80s uh, release and um, reproductive uh, momentum, I suppose. So that was quite nice to have a, an additional method of, an, an additional line of evidence for around the 1980s, uh, time frame
0: yeah they did um they did qualify that by saying there was a possibility it might have been a cold induced mortality event of the sp- snakes which were introduced but um or something else like um, yes or just a lag in their breeding success but like yeah i think the the evidence of it being the uh being the introduction events probably pretty damn good
1: yeah yeah i like their closing st- one of their closing statements morphological voucher specimens and broader phylogenetic sampling throughout the native range including sympatric areas could improve taxonomic uncertainty <laughs> yeah what they'll
0: find is the that when they that, when they sample sympatric areas they'll find that the uh, the genetic material is almost identical to that, that there's in the Everglades
1: <laughs> maybe or that there's some sort of super python as many of the news outlets reported this as
0: Oh yeah, super Python. I dare, yeah, I did not search for the Burmese Python on Google anymore, but yeah.
1: Well, that's. I'm pretty sure the word "super Python" was used at least a couple of times when I was yeah, looking around at this was. stuff.
0: And actually, from outlets which you'd expect better from, like, I mean, The Guardian, I think said that, right? I don't. Oh, I don't, yeah. I don't oh, yeah. know off the top of the Guardians. Right, yeah. The Guardian's headline was "Super Snake: Hybrid Pythons Could Pose New Threat to Florida Everglades."
1: Yeah, it's a little bit sloppy, really, isn't it? Because, yeah. I know what they're going for, but...
0: Yeah. The image made me feel a bit sad as well. It was just a person grasping a Burmese python's head really tightly. (sighs) You just think, oh, poor little snake.
1: Yeah, they're not really bad guys in this. Not by by any fault of their own. No. Proves how... um, that's something that I always come back with with these invasive species. You can pick up a species, throw it in a novel environment, and uh, not only does it survive, but it sort of thrives. Always amazes me.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the vast majority don't thrive, but you just hear about the ones that do.
1: Yeah, I suppose there is a sampling bias there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hey. Um, and also, the victors yeah. sort of it's right funny, history, isn't it, right? It, it does, yeah. It does, exactly, man. It does make me laugh though, because like last week we were talking about translocation. Like, don't move a snake three kilometers or it'll die. And now we're like, this <laughs> yeah, Burmese python is it like, about, it's gone from a cozy little life in a miles? vivarium. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's whatever. gone from Luna's cozy little life in a vivarium where a rat gets tossed to it every two weeks. All of a sudden, it's like <coughs> frost out trying to find a little island to live in, surrounded by alligators. And it's just like, what do I do? Well, I'm going to lay sixty eggs and smash it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Was that an alligator? I reckon I could eat that.
0: Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Come at me, scaly thing I don't (laughs) recognise. If I can eat a rat, I can eat an alligator. Yeah. You can just see a... uh, Just imagine a Burmese python like scanning its instincts. Hmm, what is this scaled beast? Like, um... Hmm, I don't have any inherited memory to tackle this, but I'm just going to eat it. (laughs) Well, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Actually, I suppose they do co-occur with crocodiles. They do co-occur with... Siamese crocodile, right?
1: Siamese crocodiles, and... Possibly Chinese alligators.
0: Actually, yeah, and, and Indian must, Yeah, and, and marsh muggers. To Mister Yeah, maybe. Mm. That's better than the South, python, Maybe Indian python must co-occur with marsh muggers as well. So, yeah, actually, they probably just think, "Damn, that's a funny looking crocodile." <laughs> <laughs> and that one's tiny. I can have that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, should we? Uh, Should we move on to the next topic? What have you got?
1: Okay, well then we'll do uh, Tetrapods on the Edge. Overcoming data limitations to identify phylogenetic conservation priorities. Uh, By Grums, Gray, Wern, and Owen, published in 2018 in Plus One. So cool. if I completely butcher this paper, you can go read it yourself and uh, spot all the mistakes I've made trying to describe what it does.
0: <laughs> I so, haven't read it, so I can't comment.
1: <laughs> well, that's exactly it. Yeah, there you go. I've, I've got free reign. Um, <laughs> so as alluded to in the title, Tetrapods on the Edge, Edge is not. It's not a word. It's an acronym. And five points if you can remember what it stands for.
0: Edge. Yep. Um. Okay. Uh. Edge. 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 I, <laughs> is it? I'm sure it's come up before, but I think a long time ago. Um. Alright. Oh, I'm so I'm on the spot here. Okay. E. I'm just going evaluating. Look. Evaluating. Okay. Uh. D. Um. Nah. Oh, go on. <laughs>
1: you not even gonna, can't even make
0: make one up. If um, you give me D, I can maybe get G and E. Let's do it that way. Distinctiveness. Evaluating distinctiveness of genetic. Uh, uh, I I don't know. I'm thinking of the um, edge of existence. Is what I'm thinking.
1: Yes. Of. You you see. You're thinking of the right thing. So oh, I'll, put you out, okay. I'll put you out of your misery. Uh, oh, evolutionary distinctiveness global endangerment
0: oh come on that's not even a sentence
1: alright well put and in the middle evolutionary distinctiveness and global endangerment
0: I mean that is tenuous they obviously really wanted to call it EDGE
1: yeah I think it's great
0: <laughs> you think it's great? I like yeah. the name of it it's I, memorable. I like the acronym more than I like what the acronym means which is probably why it's an acronym, acronym. <laughs> so basically
1: yeah. the point of EDGE is to identify or give a sort of index to species that are, unsurprisingly, evolutionary distinct, i.e. they're quite special and have special traits and aren't related to other things particularly closely, and that are endangered. So basically a way of picking out species which perhaps is a little bit more free from... I like that species because it's cool and it does a cool thing, or... I like that species because it doesn't eat my dog.
0: Yeah, this is the Zoological Society of London thing, isn't it? I should really know more about this. Carry on, continue.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um, it's been around for a little bit, I do believe, but one of the problems with it is it relies on... I mean, it, it is impacted by incomplete phylogenetic work. And as I'm sure you know from... Every single episode, we have a species of the bi-week. There's new species described in scientific literature every day. It's insane. I don't know how anybody keeps up. Um, And what that means is that your evolutionary distinctiveness may change, along with, obviously, your endangerment level, because the world's a changing place, people are changing things, and wiping out species, yada yada. So basically, what this paper... (laughs) Uh, was doing Is it's created a new method To deal with the uncertainty In phylogenetics And try and create an index That is a little bit less sensitive To people suddenly coming up And being like Oh yeah another species here
0: Cool So I Well I, I remember now Where we had Edge In the podcast before It was with the um, purple frog Wasn't it
1: Oh yeah purple frog Yeah <laughs> purple frog back
0: Yeah that hideous creature Oh um, why did you
1: bring him up? her um, I,
0: up. I brought them up um, <laughs> because I don't know, just funny isn't it? Like, imagine that it's just, like yeah, just, just imagine one and it'll put a smile on your face A rotten plum <laughs> uh, So, what did they find? Did this me- Does this new method work? Have they tested it on any species? Yeah, so like, basically is it, is it the fallible? game plan
1: was, there's a couple of methods that have been used before I won't go into the details of all that stuff but the game plan was uh take a whole big uh species tree relationships um chop it up calculate the edge scores based on a subset of that and then reintroduce these species that you chopped out to test how effective it was um long story short they have come up with a better method i mean if they hadn't they probably wouldn't bother publishing it being we tried a bunch of stuff it didn't work i suppose would be still valuable but i doubt it would uh, warrant the effort
0: No, publication bias would see to that.
1: Yeah, but the point is the point is, it is better it seems to be more consistent with dealing with uncertainty and bringing us back to oh, I don't know how many episodes ago, but you remember there was that opinion piece about how phylogenetic studies and taxonomy shouldn't be um, influenced by conservation policy or conservation concerns basically you've got to do right. the phylogenetic work first and then work on the conservation after this helps bridge that a little bit because you can still continue working out which species are distinct and endangered without knowing the whole picture so it's just helping uh, helping softening that helping soften that uh, basically issue that other cool. studies were saying hey we should just work with Conservation stuff and sort out the phylogenetics later, or, or, I don't even I don't want to use the word manipulate because that really isn't fair. But have conservation concerns above. Uh, see that even that's not fair because it was a bit more subtle than that, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, but the ultimate like, the ultimate yeah, do, worry though. was
1: politics influencing taxonomy.
0: Mm. So it's like a shortcut to evidence based conservation. Without yeah, any, that's well, you're kind of removing some of the compromises.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's definitely not going to be perfect, but in terms of you're never working with perfect information with conservation. Um, so, hey, I think it's I think it's quite neat that it appears to be better than what we had before, and more to the point, they've now got a. They've done edge indices for reptiles. Which hasn't actually been done before. So, we have some cool uh, scores, which I suppose I could get you to guess.
0: Yeah, go on, I'll do a couple. <laughs> so,
1: the reptile and tetrapod with the highest evolutionary distinctiveness is. dot, dot, dot. The Tuatara. Oh, he's nailed it first time. Yay. So, what about the highest ranked edge species of them all? I will give you of a clue. Of any animal. Any tetrapod.
0: Any, any tetrapod. tetrapod.
1: I'll give you the clue that it comes from Madagascar, and it's endemic to Madagascar.
0: Highest ranked tetrapod. Yeah. Endemic to Madagascar. Yeah. Hmm. But it doesn't really narrow it down that much. <laughs> um. Oh. Mm. I'll let, I'll just just it get, a, it a, get it. Too. Is it the Shafaka?
1: No. No, it's herp- herpetological. It's herpetological.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm skipping out all the mammal, bird, and oh, creatures.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, um. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> Wait, you can cut this pause, can't you? Uh... Oh yeah, I'll, I'll, tr- I'll trim it
1: down so people aren't waiting forever. <laughs> wow, he's great. Is it a chameleon? It's not a chameleon. No, no. it is. Okay, uh, I can't guess. Eremochelis madagascariensis, which is a Freshwater turtle. It's
0: a tur- turtle. I would never have got that. Yeah, I know that's a <laughs> tough one to be fair. Oh man, that was ruthless, Ben. I thought it was going to be at least an
1: animal I'd heard of. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. I can. I won't give you the highest ranked edge. Squamate is uh, a type of blind snake from Madagascar. Uh, Zeno typhlops grande grande Mate,
0: I wonder, I really believe that so many blind snakes must be terribly imperiled yeah. by the onset of the Brahminy blind snake, but like, no one is looking at it.
1: Well, It's so hard to find. Well, you, you, I mean, working with snakes is hard enough without detection probability. Working yeah. with blind snakes? Oof. I mean, we yeah. know so little about want... them anyway. Where do you
0: start? I I, uh, I just, yeah, I think like it must just be, it must be happening. So many blind snakes must be going extinct because of the Brahminy blind snake just rocking up and... But yeah. obviously, there's no, there's nothing anywhere. I've never, I've seen it as a potential threat. I think once, but I've never read anything about it having been evidenced as um, causing an extinction. So, um, uh,
1: so how about uh, highest rank edged crocodilian?
0: Oh, uh, oh, oh, oh. So, is it a temistema? Oh no, but you're in the right part oh, of the world, is it the, kind of. Is it the, is it the actual garial?
1: No. Okay. Split the difference uh, and head a little bit north. Uh, oh, is it the Chinese? Yes. Alligator? Chinese alligator. Bang on. Yes! And to like finish, the, clues. the off, clues are very good. I will ask you about. Um, well, there's three amphibians here. No, t- uh, two amphibians. <laughs> I like this. We should be like, hey, everybody, playing along at home. <laughs> Oh, you absolutely can I hope people are. I hope they're now thinking of two critically endangered amphibians. Yeah, one's... I can tell you that one's a frog, and one is not a frog. Is one the golden frog? No. Probably... Uh, not even close. Now? Not even close.
0: Is it the tomato frog? No, the mountain chicken frog? Uh, Nope, you're in the complete wrong area of the world. Mm. Oh, mm. is one not
1: a frog? Is one the axolotl? No, again, you're in the complete opposite side of the world, but I guess kind of more similar. Oh, Chinese giant salamander. Chinese giant salamander is one. Absolutely. Yes. I will um, be amazed if you can get the
0: frog. Yeah, I only know about 10 frogs, so it's not going to happen. <laughs>
1: it's uh, Archie's frog, uh, which is endemic from to uh, New Zealand.
0: Ah, Archie's frog. How is Archie? Last I saw Archie. <laughs> so, shall we? Uh, let's. Okay, next, Moving on. Let's move on. Let's keep it moving. Let's keep it moving. What have we got? Yes. Next? Uh, what we Or got is next? there more to say? Mm, no, I think basically the the roundup is
1: uh, the new method is providing more information than what there was before in terms of conservation priorities. Uh, mm-hmm. It's making the best of a bad situation with a lot of data deficient species. Um and will definitely improve as more information is known. But the point is like it. it is a step in the right direction and I thought it was kind of neat to see the first time that reptiles have been done so thoroughly.
0: Yeah. Shall I uh should we talk about the question? The question Yes. You know more okay, about this question so. than I do. <laughs> so uh <coughs> basically, um well, where do I start? So we've got some new patrons this uh, by week. So um, mm. we'll start off by thanking them. So we've got three. Uh, we've got Nick Sakic, who is a long time friend of the podcast and also an MSc candidate at Brock University in Canada. Sweet. Um, yeah, he's he's been interacting with us for ages, knows his stuff about snakes, etc. Um, he's worth a follow on Twitter, actually. He's at Nick Sakic, S-A-K-I-C-H. S-A-K-I-C-H. Um, we've also got Owen Morgan, who is the sea snake famous of sea snake photos so thanks very much owen owain i should say and uh, also emily o'brien who is another new patreon and she is the one who has asked this question um because she is one of the inquiring minds patreons which grants her a question which we'll answer on the podcast and i have to admit this question was pretty pretty damn good so emily's question was as follows it was Assuming that the ancestral condition of squamates was to lay eggs, when did viviparity evolve? I assume it must have done so many separate times. Are there any cases where previously viviparous groups have reverted to oviparity? Are there examples of species that do something that could be considered partway in between, such as laying eggs with a relatively thin or undeveloped shell, but a shell that is still more than just an amniotic sac, or whose embryos are already fairly developed when the eggs are laid and hatch relatively soon after? So, um... Okay, so I'll start off with like, where did viviparity evolve? So the earliest known evidence for viviparity in squamates, which is just to be clear, um, snakes, lizards, and amphibians, um, and the earliest and evidence what, sorry? it amphibians. Oh, <laughs> you know amphibians. Yeah, sorry.
1: <laughs> what what happened was the call broke up a tiny bit, and I heard amphibians. Oh, right. and I'm like, that's what? That what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, no, no, frogs. no. amphibians. Yeah, they're just like very <coughs> scaly sausage things. Oh yeah, um, so scaly sausage boys. But yeah. Yeah, scaly sausage boys. So uh, yeah, so the earliest record of in squamates um, is a fossil which was talked about in a paper by Wang and Evans in 2011. And they discussed this fossil of a lizard called Yabanosaurus which had 15 embryonic lizards inside itself. Um, and that fossil was dated to the late Cretaceous period about 125 million years ago. So squamates have been viviparous for at least that long in terms of like physical evidence to suggest it. Um, so I looked in, to answer the rest of the question, I looked in my big textbook, which is Herpetology and Introductory Biology of Reptiles and Amphibians by Witt and Caldwell. And um, according to them... Viviparity has evolved at least 115 times in squamates. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It gets pretty real after this. Um, and actually, it's they allege it to have evolved more times in squamates than it has in all other vertebrate groups, um, having only evolved 38 times in non-squamate vertebrates, as far as science is aware. Um, so when you talk hmm. about changing from viviparity to oviparity, or vice versa... Um, Viviparity is giving birth to live young, and oviparity is laying eggs, which then are incubated in a medium and then eventually hatch. Um, So there's obviously benefits to oviparity in that you just lay the eggs and you're done with it. You can leave, you don't have to worry about carrying them to term. But there's also advantages to viviparity where you have more control over the temperature of the embryos inside, and also you don't have to root around looking for somewhere to lay the eggs and also you can more you can have more control over the um, addition of uh, nutrients and things like that into the growing embryo so when a snake is producing an egg it's like the egg and the yolk have to be ready to go when the snake is laying the eggs whereas when if they're going through the process and actually um, developing the embryos inside the snake, then it can happen over a period of time and it doesn't have to be like an all-in-one big hit. Um, they can kind of spread the nutrients out based on what availability they have. Um, and so for a snake to go from laying eggs to giving birth to live young, um, there's a few morphological changes that have to happen to the female and the kind of the eggs which are being produced. Um, firstly, obviously, the eggs are retained for a lot longer. Um shell membranes if you're becoming viviparous have to be greatly reduced so yeah there's no longer putting a big calcium shell on things and also uh, the mother needs to start transferring nutrients from her body to the growing embryos inside and uh, she's going to need a need a means to do that um scientists call this transferring from lecithotrophy which is um a big word egg egg yolk based nutrient uptake from an embryo, to matrotrophy, which is where the nutrients come from. Um, So the idea is that where snakes have evolved to be um, viviparous, they've changed to this matrotrophy method. Um, There is an example of a modern snake which can do either and may represent something akin to the in-between state, and that is a colubrid called Virginia striatula, which is the rough rough earth snake from the southeastern United States. So, this is a snake which can develop exclusively using egg yolk reserves in the egg, or alternatively, it can actually receive nutrients from the mother's oviduct, like mostly things like calcium passing along the oviductal lining to the yolk sac of the embryo, which is pressed up against the edge of the oviduct. It's quite a similar process to egg formation, but it's different in that the mother has a direct line to the embryo, and so you can kind of see that once that line's established, it's only a very short leap to give more nutrients to the baby mm. snakes through the oviduct and um that is it's for that reason it's thought that um matrotrophy so the mother feeding the embryos directly through her body and viviparity actually evolved simultaneously in squamates which is kind of cool um so then after i'd had a look in that textbook i went on and i read uh the shine paper from 2015 um it's always which a shine was quite... paper somewhere Yeah, well, it's quite, it's interesting, this paper, because um, I was really enjoying it, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. It's kind of a, it's not quite an opinion piece, obviously, there's, like, a bit of stuff, but it was mostly just, like, discussing the adaptive reasons for um, viviparity and oviparity. Mm. um, That was going to be one of of my next
1: questions, exactly that.
0: Yeah, so one of Emily's questions was, um, you know, does oviparity re-evolve, or does oviparity evolve from viviparous um reptiles and um yeah it seems to be quite rare uh, according to shine it would require the stages which lead towards reverting back to be beneficial to the mother so what i mean by that is if you have a viviparous snake which would benefit from being oviparous it can't just flick a switch and start like laying eggs again um So, for example, if there's a snake which is giving birth to live young and it suddenly finds itself in a climate which is suitable for depositing eggs in the ground and there's lots of nesting sites around, um, it can't just suddenly, like, yeah, I'm going to lay eggs instead. It actually needs to be beneficial to have, like, slightly shorter egg retention and then a bit shorter, then a bit shorter, and so on, according to Shine. Um, He argues that this would be difficult to accomplish because high costs to the female of carrying heavy embryos occur at the end of the gestation period. So you'd have this situation where a snake, which when it was first starting to revert back to egg laying, would have really heavy embryos that were nearly ready to be delivered. And it would be trying to lay them in eggs somewhere near, like, you know, in a a suitable nesting site, which would kind of represent an incredibly difficult feat for a female snake. Um, And in addition to that, uh, the biggest benefit in terms of fecundity, so like overall babies produced... Uh, is the opportunity for female snakes to produce a second clutch if they're laying shelled eggs. So the difficulty with that is that to reap that reward, the female has to get all the way back to laying the eggs really early to give it another chance to produce more eggs and lay a second clutch. So what that means is that um, the female's got a big hill to climb between the massive benefit of laying two clutches of eggs and um, the disparity between oviparous and viviparous. So... If you imagine to make it really clear, like you've got a snake which is carrying babies all the way to term and then giving birth to them, it has to work its way all the way back to laying eggs really, really like months earlier before it receives the benefit of being able to then produce a second clutch. And evolutionarily, that is quite a big leap. Um, hmm. That's one that's but I mean that shine's main argument. He suggests you know he seems to believe in this twenty fifteen paper that it's really difficult to get back to um viviparity sorry get back to oviparity from viviparity so i was like okay yeah that all makes pretty good sense right like once the snakes become viviparous the chances are it won't go back to being oviparous i hadn't seen many examples of it happening um i was like okay yeah that all makes that makes pretty good sense uh but then i stumbled across a pylon and burbank paper from 2014 and um, <clears throat> I mean, they pretty much completely contest Shine's. <laughs> yeah, it's not even a rebuttal because Shine's paper was published afterwards. Um, but okay, their so it's paper, just a, a conflicting mind, uh, is,
1: uh, counter yeah, logical yeah. explanation. For yeah. It. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So what Pion and Berberg did was they created this maximum likelihood tree from the huge number of squamate lineages. So they oh, had like tons and lost. tons and tons of lizards, snakes, all sorts of stuff. And um, they actually, from this, they recovered lots of evidence that it was actually quite easy for squamates to revert to egg laying from being live bearing or viviparous, as most have really simple placental structures, and um, they're essentially just retaining shellless eggs to full term. So there actually isn't that much difference in terms of the processes which go into producing young in a viviparous sense, and in the an oviparous one, just all you lacking, really need to do... the
1: membrane.
0: Yeah, you just need to tack yeah. a shell back on, which which presumably, for the most part, they still have, um, you know, the genetic structures to do. Um, so that's kind of like, okay, that got me thinking right. So actually, maybe it isn't that difficult. And then they go on to say, um, but actually, parity mode, so oviparous or viviparous, is actually pretty labile trait in squamates and transitions between oviparity and viviparity are both possible and frequent in the evolutionary history of squamates. And then they drop a massive bomb and say that contrary to what was previously thought, the ancestral state of squamates wasn't in fact being oviparous, laying eggs, it was actually being viviparous. Um, and they okay. evidence this because... So lots of very early skink species, we're talking sort of like 166 million years ago, are uh, mostly viviparous, and they had evidence for viviparous squamates from as long ago as 174 million years ago. You know, what this else? is like.
1: I, I just throwing another, like, hey, here's a fun fact.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ichthyosaurs
1: viviparous. Yeah. I saw an awesome fossil of one in the midst of, <clears throat> well, basically giving birth, but fossilized with uh, others yeah. inside the uh, mother Ichthyosaur.
0: Yeah, so Ichthyosaurs. Awesome yeah ichthyosaurs and um there's another kind of marine reptile as well uh,
1: plesiosaurs
0: plesiosaurs
1: ah uh-huh. yes
0: so yeah ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs necks, right? yeah yeah the ones with long necks and spiky teeth yes <laughs> they uh so they're both from the mesozoic and they're diapsids which are um giving birth to live young so yeah there's evidence for it even further f- forward than that. um i don't know whether or not they actually are like direct uh relatives of squamates or not i'm not sure i'm not digging went. into that no 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 one knows um but yeah so <laughs> essentially <clears throat> someone might but it ain't us yeah so essentially what um pyron and Burbrink are suggesting is that viviparity hasn't actually evolved 115 times as i previously suggested um because it could you know the ancestral state is probably look. viviparity what's that
1: you flip that number it's like
0: yeah 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 kind of kind of yeah but also if you think um if you were looking backwards as assuming that everything was oviparous and then looking for instances of viviparity then actually it might just be that there's way fewer evolutions evolution incidences of of oviparous um
1: yeah this brings me to basically the question i want to ask regarding those papers is how, did they, how were they inferring this? Because in my mind, I have a paper where people have a big squamate uh, tree. They yes. map all the traits of every single squamate that they know is uh, viviparous, oviparous, whatever. And they do uh, what do they call it? Ancestral state reconstruction. Yeah, uh, fish examinated. bash bosh. You work it out. You find the most parsimonious uh, solution. And you have your answer, right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what they did.
1: So, why was this Shine paper written? If that was, you made it sound like the Shine paper didn't give too much, uh, like new analysis.
0: No, it didn't really. It was more just like, well, it didn't. Uh, I mean, I don't want to bash anyone, but um,
1: I don't know. It it just it it seems like that's a very answerable, uh, or at least out analysis method seems quite uh, obvious to. Answer that, and if that's what the Burbank paper did, then cool, and I'll I'll be quiet.
0: Yeah, but if, I mean, it could be that they came out at a relatively similar time.
1: Yes, it might be. They might have been written in tandem. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that uh, there was a lack. There's certainly yeah. no,
0: yeah, there's certainly no beef between these authors because both no. cite each other ex- like a lot. Um, yeah, I'd yeah, have to was... go back and look at the Shine paper as to whether or not they actually made any mention of it, but I'm pretty sure they didn't.
1: Well, then it's probably just a like uh, crossing. Crossing publication things, one came out as the other was being written, and it just didn't. You know, things are in review
0: for a while, so understandable. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine that's probably the case. But um, so anyway, the final part of Emily's question was yes. Yeah, so, are there examples of I've kind of just gone into it, but examples where viviparous animals have gone back to oviparous? And yes, there are actually some examples of extant species which are examples of this happening. So. There's evidence for reversal, as I alluded to earlier, in a really badass genus, which is Lachesis, aka the Bushmasters.
1: The Bushmaster. The Master of the Bush.
0: Yeah, so they have a, an ancestor which is um Viviparis, but they themselves are of a Paris.
1: Based on based on the Burbrink paper, I'm presuming.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh no, excuse me, no, no, no. Uh that's actually from Fenwick et al. That's a different paper.
1: Which is which is what? Saying that their ancestor is Viviparous.
0: Ancestors of Viviparous, but they themselves are of Paris.
1: Which makes a lot of sense if you think of the context of Vipers, with a lot of them being Viviparous, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's um, you know, looking back at the envelope nonsense, but in my mind that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, and the other one, which will actually probably also make a lot of sense to you as well, is um, Old World Samboas. So this was a paper by Lynch and Wagner in 2010, and Eric's Jayakari, aka the Arabian sand boa, um their phylogenetic analysis showed that they have also become oviparous from a viviparous ancestor, um, which is really cool. I mean, they, they did that similar way, you know, the old uh, reconstruction. But um, there's also some morphological evidence for this in that the egg tooth is missing in Eric's Jayakari. So that suggests oh. that it, it evolved and it was viviparous. And it didn't need an egg tooth, because, I mean, an egg tooth bashing around inside a female snake is not going to do any good. Yeah. And then when they re-evolved the egg, it it doesn't... Or when they evolved the egg, it might well be. Um, They didn't evolve the egg tooth this time. So the animal basically gets out of its egg by using its body as a battering ram and just thrashing about until the egg breaks. But they also have very, very thin eggs, which probably makes this a little bit easier to do. Hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Long story short, viviparity... Is most likely the ancestral state of Squamates, and it actually might be a pretty flexible labile trait where they can switch back and forth, you know, evolutionarily as mm. time goes on. But um, I think there's probably a lot more to be said on this issue in the future. Um, yeah, the ancestral uh, state I stuff, certainly. It.
1: Like, as in way, 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 way way back. Yeah. Because that's just yeah. so far outside of stuff I'm yeah.
0: familiar with. But yeah, okay. so... i mean that was a whole yeah i mean that was a voyage of learning for me i didn't know any of that so um yeah thank you very much emily for your question and thanks for being our patron
1: yes thank you very much yeah cool question question sorted FIFA parity partially understood bushmasters (laughs) mentioned and uh, respected and appreciated what's next Shall we move on to the Species of the Bi-Week? We should do Species of the Bi-Week. Or should is, we say... Uh, theme tune. Species of the Bi-Week. Oh,
0: Specieses. Spe- of species. The <laughs> I can't do any more. Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> the Species of the Bi-Week paper this week is by Worcester, Chirio, Trape, Iniek, Jackson, Greenbaum, Citation software has cut me off. Where are the others? Okay, I'll take over. Baron, uh,
1: Kusama, (laughs) Nagi, Story, Hall, Worcester, (laughs) Barlow, and Broadly. That's you using that APA citation style, isn't it?
0: I know. Monster, absolute monster. I know. Cuts (laughs) people off. It's not on. Um, How rude! So this is a paper. This is a paper by our supervisor Wolfgang. So we'd be remiss not to say, "Hey, Wolfgang." (laughs) (laughs) Nice. But but this is a cool paper, like um essentially the taxonomy of African Cobra is is a bit of a mystery. And um the authors right. of this paper set out to Demystify delimit- it. Yeah, well at least, you know, demystify a small portion of it and um delimit species within the Nya melanolusa complex or melanoleuca complex using mm. um yeah, mitochondrial and nuclear gene sequences and morphological a
1: morphometrics, Yes. Yeah.
0: That's the way to do it. Oh, or- Old school and new school wrapped up together.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I don't want my stuff just done on scale counts, please.
0: No, you know, back in the day it was fine, but um, nowadays we've got we've Well, got and you're new dealing with science. potentially
1: quite cryptic species too.
0: Especially so, when they all look the same as well.
1: They do look. <laughs> I mean, that's a little bit unfair because there are differences in colouration and things. But I think it would take quite a trained eye to uh, spot one as opposed to another in a uh, contact zone or something where two species are occurring.
0: Yeah, especially as there is a little bit of sympatry among this um, complex, I think. Yes. So, um, yeah, there's five species discussed in this paper. Um, Two new ones. Yeah, two which are new to science and the other three which are kind of formally described... Um, because there's sort of like scattered bits about them elsewhere. This is just like a, a capsule for the uh, Meneluca complex. Yes. And, um, well, should we get back into the species?
1: Yes. Uh, yes. So, the first one we have is uh, Naja Gineensis? Gineensis? Is that how you'd say is you Do you
0: say Naja? I always say Naya. I don't know what's right.
1: Well, Yes. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think the soft J is correct, what you're saying.
0: Okay. But Oh really?
1: I think so. Because doesn't but it come from a previous word that's Naga?
0: Which yeah, it is does, yeah.
1: some Indian language, which I don't know, I think.
0: Um because yeah. it comes it from Sanskrit and Pali apparently.
1: But any insight on the pronunciation? No. Okay, well, if you say one and I say the other, um,
0: yeah, let's do it like that. It's a good idea. On average, let's have zero. Yeah, the worst thing we want to be is consistent. <laughs> if you're if you're consistently wrong, you look like a fool. But if you're inconsistently wrong, well, you only look like part of a fool.
1: Well, yeah, people can't without a hundred percent confidence say you are wrong because sometimes you'll be mm.
0: right. Yeah, so the first species, as you said, is Naja guineensis, aka the Black Forest Cobra. Easy to remember because it sounds really similar to your favourite cake.
1: Oh, man, how did you know?
0: <laughs> Black Forest Gatto. I flippin' love um, those cakes, man. <laughs> they are delicious. So the name means from Guinea, and that refers to the fact that it's found in... In Guinea. A- in Guinea <laughs> Wait a second. That's too, <laughs> that's too simple. That's way too simple. Yeah, well, it's actually found in the upper guinea forests of west africa from western togo to liberia and guinea um and to look at it it's like brownish black along the back and sides it's got a cream colored face with like black bars along the mm. cheeks we'll say um and it has cream scales along the sides of the neck a face like a cobra definitely a face like a cobra yeah like quite a sort of flattened head
1: oh it's worth mentioning um, actually. The descriptions, you don't really have to take our word for it at all, because this paper's open access, so if you want to see a bunch of cobra pictures, you can just go check it out.
0: Yeah, it's worth it just for the photos. Um, It also has, like, weak bands on the ventral side near the head, um, so you can see those when it hoods.
1: But if it's hooding, well, probably, you know, you're messing with it too much, would be my.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's a really impressive beast, and... uh,
1: we have a snout-to-vent length of 1,850 millimetres. So, you know, that's a decent-sized Cobra in my books. The largest ever recorded had a total length of 2,255 millimetres.
0: Yeah, so that's over 7 feet long.
1: Yeah. Uh, Supposedly, in sixty-six, there was one that was 8 feet and 8 inches, which is 2,640 millimetres. So yeah that's not insignificant
0: no it's a big snake it's a big impressive cobra for sure yeah and so that's naya guineensis and the second new species is naya savanula
1: savanula which
0: yeah so this one in appearance it's relatively similar to guineensis it has a brown yes. head dorsal color is brown getting blacker towards the tail it um, also has lots of yellow on the face, but unlike guineensis, it has a much more yellow ventral surface, and also uh, along the sides of the sort of front third of the body. So the hood, when it hoods, the underneath is mostly kind of this creamy yellow colour with the odd black scale and a couple of black bars. Mm. So I would say overall, overall, I, I think this is a, a, a more pretty snake.
1: Uh, yes, a I mean, pretty snake. Yeah, the 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 trick is, I bet you. Things like that are relatively variable, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, you could probably get one that looks like the other and vice versa, I'm sure. Yeah. Either way, yeah, very good looking cobra. Very good looking. Based on the photos of the individuals we have, I prefer Naya Savanula.
1: Okay, but which would win in a fight?
0: Um, hmm. Which would win in a fight? That's a good question. I think the um, Savanula would win in a fight. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think anything that just survives on a savanna is going to be pretty wily.
1: Yeah. So you don't think that? Yeah. All right. That's that's solid reasoning. <laughs>
0: what would you say? Um, yeah, I
1: reckon so. You know, it's living you in agree. the matrix, it's it's living on it's living on the streets. It's <laughs> it's got to know how to survive. They're big animals
0: uh, <clears> out in the savanna. They are. There are. There's honey badgers, for goodness sake. I mean, I don't know the range of honey badger. They may or not be there, but, you know. Um, then, yeah. Por- porcupines, maybe? Who knows? Um, yeah, they
1: just... They just run at it. <laughs> How do you defend against <laughs> so, that? Can't bite your spine? Bite?
0: <laughs> no. No. There is that video of a boa constrictor which tried to bite a... um. some spiny animal in uh, Central America somewhere, and it just horrendous. It's like completely... It's like it's been stabbed a hundred times. All the spines have come out of its body. It's pretty sad. I shouldn't have brought it up. Um,
1: but <laughs> okay, yeah, the name of on.
0: this... Yeah, the name of this Naya savannula is derived from the contraction of its savanna habitat and its annulated colour pattern. So, shaped like a ring. It's got, like, rings across the body. Yeah, um, nice banding. And the common name... Yeah, common name refers to that too. The West African banded cobra, found in Senegal and Gambia, east to northern Cameroon. So... In terms of range width, it's quite similar to Giniensis, only it's found a little bit further north.
1: Yeah, it's slightly potentially slightly smaller, but like marginally so.
0: Yeah, although um, they do mention in the paper, actually, that the distribution might be wider than what they've sampled.
1: Um, yes, that's actually something worth mentioning as we're going on, is... I love the phylogenetic studies that have maps showing sampling sites and the distribution of the species, because... This one, you are seeing some nice geographic uh, pockets. Like, obviously, there's overlap areas and, you know, mixing and things like that. But it does make a lot of sense, the way they're separated out across uh, west and central and over to, actually, eastern Africa for uh, one of the species.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's um, Nya subfulva, which actually... I mean that one's really, really widespread across like central and southern um Africa and mm. east. Um and that one's my favourite, I think, of the five.
1: Oh, okay. Yes, I see why.
0: The Mount Kenya one looks a little bit like a king cobra.
1: It does a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's got it's got a friendlier face though.
1: It does have a friendlier face.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah. So five new species, the others which are, but they're, well, they're not new species, the other three which are sort of, um, they give really good like, morphological characters and also um, genetic information on are Naya subfulva, uh, Naya pyroescubari, and the um, melan- melanoluca, which is the, the sort of um, <clears throat> name of the group.
1: The complex, absolutely. Yeah, yeah,
0: the complex, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I don't really know what else is to be said about those. I think it's just cool that got a better idea of what's going on with cobras across Africa. Um, yeah. <coughs> I did like their yeah, first rel- line of the discussion. The results of this study illustrate the level to which we still remain ignorant of the species diversity of even some of the most iconic organisms
0: alive today. King Cobra. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um it's cool, you know, it allows us to ask a lot more questions about the ecology of these different species. It also allows fills in some for gaps for edge
1: of, reducing uncertainty there.
0: Yeah, the fact that these are species which are genetically distinct from each other, they're going to have different venoms, um they're adapted to you know, different foraging techniques and yep. so yeah, there's a whole whole bundle of you know, both snake bite stuff and ecological stuff that can come from that, so yeah.
1: Yes, well that's what we were sort of again, bringing it back up. Phylogenetic stuff, it does provide a pretty important basis for going forward. Uh, so cool, which is why we do sort of species of bi-week stuff, because, you know, it is important.
0: Yeah, yeah, so two new species, Nya guineensis and Nya savanula. Right, any other business? Um... I
1: don't have any other business because I have a distinct lack of things in front of me. Um
0: You ain't got no business.
1: No no. Not really. A distinct lack okay, of business.
0: Well, you are unbusinesslike, uh, and that's okay. So I'll do some business. I've got um well, so there's a new book out which I've pre ordered. Um Big Book of Snapchat. Volume nah, 5. I not can't, I can't afford Marco Shea's new book. I wish I could. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, of course. What is What is that called? Book of Snakes? It's called The Book of Snakes. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And they're like apparently the snakes inside are life-size, I think, the photos, which is awesome, if it's true, if I'm not making that up. Don't quote me on that. Well, then uh, we know
1: Super might... Pythons in there then, will there?
0: Well, unless there's actually just 100 pages of one python. (laughs) Oh, it's just one page and it just unfolds and unfolds and (laughs) unfolds. Yeah, that actually might be nonsense that there. I don't know where I got that fact from. It looks awesome and I will (laughs) own it at some point. It's um... a big
1: book and it looks intimidating. They must be life size. (laughs) The joke is it's just filled with blind snakes.
0: Yeah, little fingernail snakes. yeah, so this book I'm going to talk about briefly is called A Naturalist's Guide to the Dangerous Creatures of Australia, and this is by Peter Rowland and Scott Iper. Scott's um, extremely knowledgeable guy um, on Australian reptiles, etc. Um, always correcting us on stuff. Actually, I've got some corrections from them coming up. It looks like it's going to be really good. Yeah, so I've pre-ordered a copy, and um, yeah, ne- next episode I'll um, hopefully have read it and I can give a bit more details, but um, yeah, based on the cover and, yeah, I think you should go get it. You know what they <laughs> say about judging books by covers now? Always wise. <laughs> Make sure you give it a good hard look before you judge it. <laughs> you can judge a book by its cover, yes. Yeah. As they say, yeah. I mean, the cover's got a spider on it. That's a bit spooky, but... um. Yeah. <laughs> oh, five out of ten. How's a spider, not a snake? <laughs> um, other stuff. So, Captive and Field Herpetology. Issue two has come out. Um brand well not now brand new it's in its second installation in, installment second installment um but yeah captain issue, field herpetology second issue yeah um brand like free it's completely free um observation based journal this one's like really cool um what have we got we've got this issue
1: do you have one about a bongaras climbing a tree
0: ado I ado I ado I there you go written by our good friend tyler there you go and uh terrenard uh here we go yeah so we've got one about a crate climbing a tree you know there's some there's some captive stuff about hatching banded iguanas um feeding bridal snakes uh predation records for various species it's really cool um and it's like open access and you know there, it's extremely accessible. I highly recommend it. Go and check that out. Um, I'll leave a link in the description for mm. the Captive and Field Hepatology. Um, what else we got? <clears throat> oh, yes. Yeah, so I've got some corrections.
1: Yes, yeah, corrections.
0: So so at the end of the last episode, or no, not at the end, but during the discussion of that um, Cryptelotops alba paper, I said that they evolved in China and then subsequently spread that was actually wrong i went back and had a look at the paper it's by Zhu et al 2016 they actually originated in thailand and myanmar um so yeah that's my bad um then hmm. we had dr ashley wolf <coughs> who is one of the authors of the dugite translocation paper oh, notice oh, yes. how I pronounce that dugite. dugite um yeah she corrected us on that so thank you very much um
1: yeah i would have never guessed it was it was pronounced like that that's one of those things that i feel like you just have to be told
0: yeah, and now sorry. we've, now we've been sorry. humiliated, we'll never get it wrong again.
1: <laughs> well, that's the thing is, I bet you I will in my head. I'll read it wrong and then have to stop yeah. myself as I'm saying it.
0: If they're called Dugites, just write Dugite. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> no, but that doesn't look as good, does it?
0: No, true. Do but um, yeah, we also received that same correction from Scott Iper of the aforementioned brand new book. Um, he also told us that the Air Peninsula... Which was one of the places, the Dewgates Range. It was how far the Dewgates Range extends southward, I believe. Mm. Um, Is actually pronounced "air," not "ire," as I said. Um, personally, well, I that's... think it should be pronounced "ire," but you know, whatever.
1: Um, you, you can't, yeah. you can't override that. That's that's a no. no that's I know I can't. That's a place with history and names.
0: That's why I'm. Yeah, that's. I mean, you yeah, got that's step back. I, yeah, sorry, Sit I was out of line um <laughs> yeah i was out of line it's called the air peninsula um and finally another, a correction from emily o'brien o'brien um sorry emily if i've been butchering your surname uh she said apologies if someone has mentioned this and i missed it but in several episodes you mention and i'm going to say it how i used to say it Oaxaca. bless you <laughs> uh yeah and i think you should check your pronunciation it's actually pronounced." oaxaca and um i think we've talked about some snakes from this region in mexico in uh, oh, episodes gone by
1: yes i feel like that might have been the region that i was talking about the snake bite predicted by ecological niche maybe
0: uh, okay but yeah oh, but that's we... it that's all the corrections All the in business massive Sorry.
1: thanks for corrections guys massive thanks yeah thank Always you very much appreciate
0: and, if you've, that. and if you've heard anything that we've said in this episode which is nonsense which uh is quite likely or if like distinct possibility yeah or if the viviparity of a Parity thing has moved on since what i've read then yeah get in touch with <laughs> or if you here. want to
1: talk about oviviparous, Ovi um I, I guess you could
0: yeah <laughs> that's a whole nother can of worms
1: oh boy keep those worms in the can
0: keep yeah, the literally can like, off a cliff the last thing we need is worms splin out all over the place so um yeah. So, uh, yeah. So um, Emily's question was answered because she's a um, inquiring mind patron, uh, but that doesn't preclude anyone else asking us questions. If you email us with a question, we'll answer it, um, but it just won't be featured on the show. Yes. Just thought we'd clarify that. Like we, yeah. We ask don't us want a to question.
1: say, dissuade questions. That's that's pretty anti what we're doing. Yeah. Cool.
0: Not that we have any answers. <laughs> so um, Sometimes sometimes we do. On the odd occasion.
1: Sometimes we do. Um, if you want to know about King Cobra Spatial Ecology, uh, wait a couple of
0: weeks and uh, there might be some of you to read. Ooh, that's very exciting. That just about wraps it up, I think. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com uh, We're at facebook.com slash herphighlights. Twitter at herphighlights. Um what's the other one is there another one Don't um,
1: so. I mean if there is you can probably just find it by searching her highlights so yeah. if we're there we'll be findable
0: yeah um, yeah I think all remains to say is um, thanks for listening yes thank you for listening